Hello, good evening and welcome to the Final Fest Best of the Fringe podcast. Um, today's show we're going to be grounding up the, what's been a really tumultuous, exciting, entertaining three weeks in the Edinburgh Fringe. And we're going to be talking about the shortlist for the what's now apparently called the Foster's Edinburgh Comedy Awards, who knew? And uh, looking back, yeah, what's what's been going on uh, this summer. Uh, we've got in the studio with us today, we've got Ed McCracken. Hello. Ben Judge. Hello. And I'm your presenter, Peter Gagan. Don't go away. Um, so we're join- you're joining us here on Friday morning, uh, so we must confess that the, if you're listening to this after the weekend, the awards have probably been announced, and some of the, well, for all of us for the next couple of moments, it's going to seem a bit pointless. But bear with us, it'll, it's worth it. There's going to be gags aplenty. Um, so the 2012 shortlist is out, so the best new comedy show, uh, there's a couple of, what, there's five best newcomers. Daniel Simonson, David Trent, uh, Discover Ben Target, Joe Lysett and Sam Fletcher. And in the kind of fully-fledged adult category, so to speak, we've got Claudio Darty, Dr. Brown, James Acaster, Josie Long, Pappies and Tony Law. Uh, guys, what do you make of this uh, uh, shortlist? Ed McCracken? Well, of that shortlist, I've only, I've only seen one of them. Well, it's Pappies. Uh, Pappies last show ever. Which, um, which for me, I wasn't actually reviewing it, but um, it's the one show that I've seen that if I had been reviewing it, I would have given it five stars. So I, I think it fully justifies its kind of place in that short list. I mean, for myself, across the, I've given probably more three stars this year than I ever have. It's been a consistently three-star kind of fringe. So this show kind of really kind of stood out for us. I'd also maybe almost cry at the end, you know? I mean, it just really... Um, it's just masterfully done, you know, it just plays with kind of, you know, theatre and kind of comedy and then just kind of gives you a big kind of sucker punch at the end as well. So, I, yeah, I thought it was great. So I did. Also good to see Josie Long on there, just because I just quite like her. Anyway. Um, yeah, I've, I've been to see twice as much on the shortlist as Ed. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen two things. Um, they were uh, Dr. Brown, who we've given quite a lot of time and attention to on the podcast, who... I'm really happy to see on the on the shortlist because he is that kind of new and interesting and very different comic that makes the fringe really what the fringe is supposed to be. And I also went to go see Claudio Doherty uh, last week and her new show. Um, I know that neither of you have, um, so I will give a kind of nice, brief, succinct <laughs> summary of my expert opinion on that. Um, it's a really interesting concept. Uh, basically, the idea is that, or the premise of her show. She's an Australian comic who's been nominated. Yes, that's right. Of course. Professionalism should have dictated that I would explain a bit more, but we're nothing if not slapdash and amateurish. Um, yeah, so she's an Australian comic who's. The concept for her show is that she hates doing stand up comedy, but she's contractually obliged to, perf- to produce three shows for her production company. Now those three shows in the contract that she was kind of examining with a fine tooth comb fine tooth comb was never spe- you know, never specifying that these shows had to be stand up comedy. So she's decided to go into serious theatre. Now I've been doing kind of inverted commas with my hands. Serious yes, theatre. For, for the audience um, at home. With a capital S and a capital T. Uh, and so the whole premise behind this is that you know, she's she's created all of this multimedia, computerized video and lighting and music system that goes on in the background while she performs this frankly ridiculous theatre piece. But the real crux of it is that midway through, she goes completely out of sync with the background. So in order to kind of keep the show going, she has to improvise and she has to completely ignore um, everything that's going on around her. And obviously, we were talking about this earlier, and it's it's a great concept, it's a great idea, unfortunately. And the reason why I'm not so sure that this 
is a worthy winner is that it doesn't quite work in terms of the execution. I think that the neither the neither the show that she puts on to replace the serious theatre piece that she's doing, nor the kind of lights and the background music and the video are funny enough components in and of themselves. And I think that there's an extent to which you have to believe that she's a stand-up, and yet her material feels too rehearsed, too, um, too pre-planned. There's not enough kind of spontaneity. It doesn't really feel as though you're watching an engaging stand-up show. It feels like you're watching an act. It actually feels like you're watching a piece of theatre, which I think is its, its, its downfall. But in terms of inventiveness, it was great and really, really impressive. I mean, have you seen Doc Brown? Yeah, yeah, we... Um, and how did that compare then? Because obviously his his shtick, as it were, um, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it more open than, say, Claudius? You know, do you feel like you're more... Actually, he's engaging a lot more with the, uh, the audience? Oh, completely. I mean, his show, especially towards the latter part for the last half an hour, last 40 minutes, and, to be honest, the first five minutes as well, is all about audience participation. It's very much about bringing the audience into the show and engaging them and making them feel part of the live event. With Claudio Doherty, it does kind of feel as though you're just there, but you could, it could be a TV programme. It's got quite a lot of elements. I'm not sure if you ever saw the Garth Marenghi's Dark Place a few years ago, mm-hmm. but it's got, that, it's got that kind of feel to it, the kind of sense of shambolic um, televisual horror mm-hmm. to it, which doesn't necessarily bring in the audience in terms of getting them involved. And I think, to be honest, given the, the kind of live stand-up scenario, that was something that was really lacking in the show. Well, because if anyone who joined us last, uh, on the earlier podcast this week would know we, we made our own little predictions for what was going to be in the in the shortlist, and rowdy we were wrong, Bardock Brown. <laughs> so in preparation for this week's podcast, we went to see some uh, some would-be contenders who turn out not to be contenders, but are well worth having a chat about anyway, uh, including that is Paul Foote and Nick Mohammed and Hannibal Burris. So we're going to have a little bit of a, a chat about some of these guys. Join you in a moment. As anyone who reads Fest magazine cover to cover, as you all should, uh, you know we're quite a parsimonious publication when it comes to the stars. We're, we're not, you won't find too many four and five star reviews in our, in our magazine. So one of only two comics to get a five star review in the magazine this year was uh, Paul Foote, who has once again, and I'm sure so there'll be comedy fans out there who'll be disappointed, including his kind of quite hardcore legion, be disappointed to see he hasn't been uh, shortlisted. But we all went to see him this week and... Yeah, it was. It's quite an experience if you, for the uninitiated. This kind of tall, quite loche character, kind of cross between the kind of sle- uh, sleazy ballroom uh, crooner and uh, what can only describe as a kind of alt, the alt comics alt comic. <laughs> <laughs> what did you make of him, Ed McCracken? Well, he kind of looked also reminded me of um, uh, is it Richard O'Brien from the Crystal Maze, but actually when it, in his Rocky Horror <laughs> picture show, kind of um, guys with the kind of the gangly like hair, like you know the hair you kind of get growing out of skeletons. You know, just kind of that kind of yes, that kind of yeah. He has that kind of quite, yeah. It, it does. It, it's not actually buffoon. It's it's quite lank and a bit greasy. In yeah, the sense it's been tacked onto. I mean, you do get the impression, even you know, the fact that he, he is committed to that look. You know, uh, there's a lot of effort that goes into being Paul Foot, <laughs> and I admire that. You know, he's uh, he's kind of seen a look and he's going for it, and very much same with his performance as well. I mean, he rings. Uh, every line for its worth, and he has a kind of very floral and florid kind of turn of phrase, which you know again it's a it's a performance, you know, like uh, we're talking about Clanny Claudio Doherty there, um, but it's definitely definitely engaging with the audience. You mm. know, at a point when I saw the show last night, because I saw it separate from you guys, um, he was kind of weeping on the shoulder of uh, 
of a, a, an audience member for a good couple of minutes uh, and wailing <laughs> down the microphone. I mean, before I went to see him, I actually didn't, you know, I knew of him. I had seen him at many places and, you know, saw him as part of that Noel Fielding kind of set. And you can very much see that kind of brand of humour and whimsy and very kind of very English eccentric kind of for um, almost very 1960s kind of humour, you know, I can imagine John Lennon being down the front, kind of loving it, or the members of the Small Faces down there, you know, kind of plotting their next kind of concept album around the show, you know. Um, so I like that part of it, but I did think that at times, especially the last five minutes, where essentially after, you know, his, his, his style is just basically introducing various scenarios in a very storytelling kind of way, full of ridiculous things like a single father who's also a wasp. You know, and there's no obvious punchlines, and I like that about it. I like that it was completely mad and very different from anything I've seen off the fringe. Actually, it reminded me of stuff that was a lot more prevalent about ten years ago. Um, you know, again, probably inspired by Eddie Eddie Izzard's kind of kind of whimsy, um, and to Mighty Bush as well. But um, so I enjoyed how it was different. But towards the end, when he was just kind of throwing out random phrases that make no sense whatsoever and the people around us were totally cracking up and it was funny for the first couple of minutes but then it's kept on going and it did kind of feel a wee bit of Emperor's New Clothes just kind of um, he could have just sat on stage in silence for five minutes and people would have applauded him to the hilt because yeah, it's it's actually compared to I also saw last year's show and this year's show almost feels like Paul Foot trying to be a little bit mainstream because <laughs> last year it took him about forty five most of the show, I've memory serves me right I'm not sure if he ever got to the stage he spent about at least forty five minutes trying to get to the stage the first twenty minutes is behind the curtain uh, and so there is uh, he has pedigree in this or this is the closest to came to gags and things <laughs> like that so you know if, I think and I'll be interested to see how he feels about not getting so recognised a little bit of wonders if this was the show where he was going to try and and he ha- it was well received by the critics not just fest by most of the critics it was a well received show there's something there's something about his delivery that is I find quite incredibly engaging mm. he has a way of is a, just a way of speaking in a way of like this incredibly idiosyncratic like the first gag which lasts about 10 minutes is about a cheese museum and a train crashing into a cheese museum <laughs> that is that is absolutely like, and in terms of how like, traditional joke setting up etc and punishment they did non-existent really again like, to recount it now is just it sound completely it would not sound in any way funny <laughs> I think I think you would need to grow your hair and stamp on the ground and yell and scream and just kind of um, be quite almost Dickensian <laughs> in your delivery to kind of and make he it also, work he picks on the audience in quite funny unusual ways so there was when we went to say there was one couple and he asked them their names and the next thing you know after like five minutes of kind of ripping into them without actually talking about them you had the guy whose name was James but it turns out that he became this guy called Jamelia who was a post-op transsexual <laughs> and also like a, a, an internet um, stockbroker <laughs> and then became a prostitute and it was just incredibly florid stuff but I don't I thought it's the delivery completely that makes it it mm. is the character mm. and he's a character comic though without without saying what his character is you know he's not like Neil Hamburger it's not like oh he's a failed comic you don't know there's no doesn't need to be a backstory this seems to be I've never met them but it also seems to be like this is Paul Foote this is what he is hmm. well I think it's the closest thing to kind of describing Paul Foote I would say was almost like a kind of one hour long nonsense poem because his kind of his control of cadence and intonation and his ability to get particular phrases and combinations of words and make them funny I mean as you were saying about the end when he, he literally just takes sentence structures and throws in words that just shouldn't really be there, but it works because of the way in which they kind of fit together. And I have to say, I kind of disagree to to a small extent with Ed in, in the sense that 
when he talks about the emperor's new clothes now there's a Dutch comedian called Hans Taewen that mm. used to come um, through to Edinburgh every every year a few years ago and I, I hated him but I went to go see him every year because everyone used to go and say this guy's amazing this guy's pushing the bounds of, of comedy and to me that was that was style over you know taking the place of any kind of substance at all but I do think that with Paul Foot there is a substantive element there he is kind of playing about with language conventions and storytelling albeit with absolutely no content so he's very much saying something about the form and I know Steve Bennett he went to go um, from Chortle he reviewed the show this year and didn't give a particularly good review in large part because he thought it was him going mainstream and not really saying much about comedy in itself and I kind of disagree with that I'm kind of a bit bored of all this meta comedy you know comedy about comedy Stuart Lee's been doing it quite a lot recently and there's only to some extent you know, there's only a limited amount of navel-gazing that you can really tolerate from comedy. I think that what was so good about this show was that it was going back to playing about and being accessible and being fun. And I think when he was tying up the end, um, when he was kind of, just after he'd been saying all of these sentences, and then he starts referencing all the stories that had come before and pulling them together into what felt like a, I guess, a kind of conclusion of sorts. Despite the fact it was, again, completely nonsense, was quite a clever way of tying in the kind of stand-up convention of tying all these stories together that didn't really make any sense into something that feels cohesive. So something like what, say, um, Jason Byrne might have done a few years ago and pulling together this kind of what seemingly ad-lib thing into one nice package. I think that, I thought that was really nicely done. Well, I guess uh, from from someone like Paul Foote, who kind of is on the margins of, kind of almost the anti-comedy movement, if, if you could call it that, uh, to a character actor, really, Nick Mohammed and uh, <laughs> his new show. Uh, we, again, we, we all went to see it this week. And I think some of us were maybe a little bit surprised that it didn't make a shortlist appearance, mm-hmm. too. I think it was quite hotly tipped to. And um, it's... Nick Mohammed is Mr. Swallowed and he is a character character actor a comic really who's appeared in the fringe in various guises over the years uh, I must confess I'd never seen him before this is my first I've only ever seen him on telly and it's the first time I'd seen him uh, seen him up close and personal and uh, I really enjoyed the show it's kind of this character who's kind of a kind of half it's half comedy half maths kind of <laughs> demonstration and I must say his new number skills are absolutely spellbinding I, I, he kind of hides them under a bushel for the first half hour and then kind of pops them out in the second half but it's this kind of a gloriously camp Yorkshire uh, Yorkshire kind of dra- dra- Amdram head really isn't he mm. uh, Mr. Swallowed and yeah, he goes Nick Mohammed really kind of take. I think he kind of rings every bit of kind of pathos and also just pure silliness out of this character. What did you feel, Ben? Uh, well, I yeah, we went on Wednesday a couple of days ago, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was good fun. I'm not entirely sure, on reflection, that it would have been a serious contender for the Edinburgh Comedy Award. I do think it was maybe a bit... It lacked... Often when the Edinburgh Comedy Award seems to kind of go to people with some sort of idea or narrative or playing about they're playing about with a form in a way that I guess is fashionable um, without wanting to sound pejorative um, whereas this was a bit more this felt a bit more traditional in the sense that it almost kind of it almost felt like a 1970s variety show um, I actually got this very camp guy almost like almost Lily Savage in, in terms of um, the way he spoke uh, and he's doing these, these maths puzzles, these maths tricks which for all that they were impressive and to some extent genuinely impressive 
um, his ability to kind of do a, a Rubik's cube in thirty seconds was you know good, but there, there's a limit to which these are spectacular enough to really be the kind of focal point of the show. And I felt that when he closed on this great big maths puzzle involving um, you know a, a grid of numbers, and I wouldn't give too much away, but effectively it's. Quite impressive. Fairness of Friends is almost over, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can give away now. Well, in which case, all of the maths works out, um, as you could probably see coming a mile off anyway. Um, and I thought I did think that in terms of ending the show on a high, whilst it it looked impressive, I remember thinking maybe an hour or two afterwards that maybe it didn't have the the laughs, the impact to be a truly great Edinburgh show and I think that it felt like it was almost there mm. but not quite there was some I thought the, ter- the first kind of 20 minutes I really really enjoyed and mm. I thought he was like his character the character of Mr. Swallowed is very well realised particularly in the first 20 minutes where you kind of get a bit more backstory you get him kind of presented this kind of quite using kind of an overhead projector for these and mm. kind of taking kind of little riffs and really kind of running with them like the 12 days of Christmas and, and the different gifts and it, it, he, that is I thought was really really funny and really well realised and then I think a little bit into the second half it kind of lost its way a tiny bit it became a bit more in a way it just wasn't as funny and it kind of, mm. I think the character there wasn't as much into the character so he could have probably brought more into the character in the second half than he did in the first but well I think it's that the character lost its edge mm. as, a, as a loser I think the the first half when you're talking about the the PowerPoint pres- the PowerPoint, which actually reminded me quite a lot of Dave Gorman's PowerPoint presentation, the way in which he would kind of set up jokes and punchlines, and then kind of pull them back and reveal a completely different punchline was is a really kind of good and effective technique. And I think the fact that this guy was such a low status um, character that when he it turns out to be this mathematical genius and you end up quite impressed, I do think that the kind of inversion of of where you start and where you end. Um, was almost the wrong way around. I think that you should be a, a, a character like that almost needs to end on an anticlimax to kind of really fulfil what the characters seems like. What would be you know a realistic kind of proposition for this character? And for me, for him to end up you know a hero was was kind of quite nar- na- you know narratively satisfying. Um, I think in terms of comedic flourish, it lost a bit for that. Yeah, that was a surprising element. I thought that the. I was kind of going in expecting this kind of, you know, maths genius, and that kind of comes out in the second half. And as you say, I think it would have been more interesting to kind of present some of that stuff at the, at the start, like, this is my amazing math skills. But then you find out that he is just really a, a quite sad Yorkshire, camp Yorkshire man trying to, uh, hmm. trying to try and failing. You know, there's these kind of riffs about... Uh, I'm still playing whole. You know, I just go back every couple of a couple of weeks to give them a top up. You know, there's this and that kind of element I thought could have been brought up more in the second mm. half, where, where he goes goes through this transformation where he says, "Oh, actually, look, I'm a maths genius." Yeah, and it kind of, yeah, I, I can kind of see that. Yeah, but <clears throat> so I didn't I didn't really kind of invest too much in the journey of the character. You know, like um, uh, that's you know that uh, when I came away from it, I wasn't kind of thinking about the character. I was just. Actually, I was thinking the thing which for me which worked the best, which I think we've already picked up on, is just the wee things on the fringes of the show, like the the PowerPoint presentation, just the slides which appear for a second and then go away. Like for example, his alternative lists of the the twelve day of Christmas. You know, uh, I thought they were great and really well realized, and they're just up for a second. And you know, and it's great because you could see various people in the audience who 
you know, who saw it like for about a second and then were cracking up on the people who like literally blinked and missed it. <laughs> and, you know, there's a real sense that something had happened and, you know, that, so I liked how that kind of worked in the room and, you know, I'm a total sucker for, for numbers and kind of maths geekery. So I was genuinely like the second half when it was quite a bit of that. I was like, oh, it's amazing. You know, right? <laughs> um, so, so in that, like I wasn't, I wasn't looking for this kind of journey for the character, um, and I didn't kind of feel at the end because he, he, you know, he did the Rubik's cube thing, and he pulls off this amazing, you know, genuinely amazing kind of math trick when he plucks numbers from the audience, and you think initially that the number of the maths has failed, and at the very end, this kind of big grand reveal, and you're like, oh my goodness, it's amazing, <laughs> and I, I, you know, it, I, I really like that. So it, I mean, I probably like that more than the actual kind of straightforward jokes. You know, I, I was impressed by the show as opposed to. Um, kind of, you know, find it hilarious, you know, um, you know, plus also anything which plays uh, E17. Yeah, laughs, I was just going to say that, Stay know. Another Day was, yeah. <laughs> it kind of does a, the kind of um, textual analysis, the kind of, of the exegesis of uh, Stay Another Day has kind of been stuck in my head, so in my head I've just been hearing like, Stay Another Day in a Camp Yorkshire accent yeah, for the I mean, last three I mean, days. I mean, that's a good bit, I mean, again, as well as being a sucker for kind of maths, kind of a numbers kind of wizardry, I'm a, a sort of sucker for people who deconstruct songs and just point out, frankly, how creepy so many of the lyrics <laughs> are, like he did with, uh, yeah, I touch your face while you're sleeping from uh, E17, <laughs> really, wow. Roy Orbison uh, is even better. Yeah, I drove all night to get you crapped in your room to make love to you. Um, <laughs> I think Julian Assange is already having some yeah. trouble in that particular issue. So, but there's another show, actually, another one of my favourite shows of The Fringe kind of did a kind of the same Lady Sings It Better, um, which does it in a completely different way where it's basically these kind of, it's a cabaret act and it's six kind of bold, brassy uh, women from um, from Sydney. And they the whole idea behind the show was basically they perform these songs written by men, but basically kind of, essentially to kind of show how creepy and misogynistic most of popular music is you know and it's when it, and that they they kind of you know do their own versions of the songs they do it amazingly well the, the music itself in itself is great and but it does make you kind of think for example um billy joel's uh it's always a woman to me you know you think it's a lovely kind of sweet kind of song about how no matter what you know i'll always love her kind of femininity and you know, kind of her in the beautiful womanly ways but actually he's just complaining about it the whole time you know <laughs> if you actually listen to the lyrics like basically he doesn't like women at all and basically being always a woman is actually meant in a completely pejorative like rolling your eyes she's just always a woman you know but the the, the tune kind of you know it's it, it's it kind of fools you into thinking it's a lovely song actually no he hates women <laughs> if you listen so um so yeah go that was another show which kind of you know tickled that part of my brain. And if Billy Joel is listening, that's allegedly hates women. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Billy. So I guess that leads us nicely on to a kind of a, after a quiet moment into a segue into a, well, some of the other shows that we saw and enjoyed over the fringe, like this week and in recent weeks. Uh, I guess for my, I went to see Hannibal Burrs on Wednesday night. Kind of thirty rock comic as he's punted as well as he admits himself that the guy who's got one line in 30 Rock so it's <laughs> probably a bit disingenuous and a bit unfair on him uh, I'd seen him do the Amnesty show recently and he was very funny um, and I don't know I, I thought it was it's he's a, his delivery is so laid back and so languid and the guy the guy who exudes this incredible insouciance is like I really don't give a shit if you're listening to me or not and I'm just going to tell my gags and sometimes they're not even going to be gags they're going to be kind of kind of gags but uh 
I did think I thought I really did enjoy it. I thought it was he is very funny, and there's times when he really is really funny, uh, and he's got a great uh, li- some great lines. Some of the gags are he ended with a really bad rape joke, which I thought was there's no need for. Is there uh, as opposed to a really good rape joke? <laughs> That's true too. Yeah, there's been a strange running is theme it a, of this a, for like a legitimate kind of rape joke. Yeah, is it kind of legitimate? Uh, I, I think the body should have rejected this one. To be honest, there was no need for it, and I it kind of felt like he didn't. That might be quite a, a niche joke for the listener, right? Go. Look, it's it's a niche listener, um, but I thought uh, I just thought he didn't quite have enough material. Um, I kind of disagree. I mean, I'm not sure. I I don't remember this rape joke from when I went to go see him. So possibly it's not a. Not something that makes the final cut of every of every show. Either that, or he just thought off, thought off in the spot. Um, but I thought that he, in terms of his um, style, I just think he's a great stand-up. Um, there's not much more to it than that. But when you when you see him at work, and having seen his his solo set, I also saw him a few days later on um, the kind of underbelly's equivalent of late and live spank. And that is a tough room to play. I mean, we were there, uh, kind of late night, past midnight, with lots of stags, you know, people cheating, or actually not cheating for the, the most part. It was, it was quite a harsh environment. And he comes on stage and he just looks at people and the room just kind of falls into his hand. He's got this, this incredible control over his voice, over his mannerisms, over his movement that is quite captivating. You, you, you listen to him. Um, and I think what he has to say isn't, I mean, he's, he's explicitly apolitical. He's not really got anything to say about society or about economics or about any of the kind of big ticket stuff, and that's fine. Not every comic has to address that. And in terms of what he does address, in terms of the kind of smaller level relationships and interpersonal kind of minor disputes, and all, you know, general observational comic fare, he is very, very good at it. Um, in terms of people maybe wanting more, you're not going to get it from Hannibal, but he is uh, stupendously talented. Yeah, I have to say he's one of the best in terms of a stand-up. He's one of the most natural stand-ups I've seen in a very long time. Mm. His delivery, his mannerisms, and just his way of finessing a gag and to make it as effortless as it, as he makes it seem. And I, I, it was just something I actually recently interviewed a, a novelist at the book festival, Juan Diaz, who was talking about the amount of effort that goes in to seeming effortless. Like, he's a novelist, has often been said. And his books are very funny, but he's, he's a writer critics say you know, he writes so effortlessly and again I think it's probably the same with Hannibal that it's, there is a huge amount of work that goes in behind the scenes to, to create this illusion of effortlessness but when you're watching it you know, sitting when you're just sitting in the audience watching it it does seem to flow and seem so natural in his way as you say he's not some great political comedian he's not going to you know he's he's the odd kind of like he tells a story about going to Norway and being sailed by some woman who's telling about how terrible Obama is and he's like well, Bob is great, you know, he's, he's, he can shoot a hoop, you know, he can, score, he, can, he can dunk a basketball, what's wrong with him? I think that's the way he is, and I, I, I like that, he doesn't make any apologies for that. And the other thing is, he's not, he's only 29, as he reveals, and he's becoming 29, so he's a young man with a lot, with, a, I think, a really, really bright future ahead of him. Um, so what else have we seen that we really liked, Ed? Well, I mean, I mentioned it just at the start, and do you know what, damn it, I'm going to mention them again. You know, Pappy's uh, last show ever, just... I, like I genuinely thought it was one of the best things I've seen in many a year. It's the not their last show ever, is it? Well, see, I hope not. Uh, I think it might just be a, a device to kind of um, reel the punters. Yeah, reel the punters in. But also, it's I mean it's pretty well realised as a you know as a concept for the show as well. Because the idea is basically um, it's the the show's told in flashback. So you have the three main guys from Pappies dressed up like old men meeting at the site of their last ever show, and they're trying to work out. 
uh, through their kind of foggy, kind of geriatric minds, what went wrong in that last show? There's, there's supposed to be the tour that never stops. So what happened in the last show? And then it's all played out in flashback, where they kind of come back to present day, where the audience is all now. And they go through the various sketches, uh, which they do really well. And you talk about kind of, um, is it Hannibal? Um, being very effortless. Um, you can see the effort that's gone into this, you know, uh, unashamedly just full of sweat and energy and just, it's exhausting watching them kind of just go through the motions, but it's so well done. And there's lovely, amazing, beautiful wee touches in there. I mean, I've seen Poppy several times, but this is the most kind of theatrical of all their shows. Um, there's one segment where uh, one of um, uh, Poppy's essentially marries uh, a lady in the front row just takes her out and uh, the evening I was there luckily there was no it was no forced marriage she just willingly came along <laughs> and then basically the uh, music plays in the background ironically always a woman to me <laughs> but sung by Fife Dangerfield you know the John Lewis version um, and what ensues for the next three minutes is just essentially like a montage of their life together very very similar to and probably directly inspired by uh, the start of Up you know the Pixar film mm. where you have that you know five minute montage again with just music telling the life story of birth marriage you know uh, life together and then also death so basically the uh, yeah the, the woman he marries uh, comes on stage and two minutes later she's dead and he's mourning her and it genuinely is really sad and just so well done they bring in props and things like that so yeah it's it's great so you got moments like that but also just some really just you know ridiculous kind of you know bending over creasing yourself with laughter kind of skits and again you know the various sketches kind of come back later on and it all kind of relates to itself and but the overall narrative structure of them trying to remember what went wrong in that last show was fully realized and then that also is what provides the emotional sucker punch at the end which is not going to ruin because it's going to tour obviously but it's so worth checking out and it's great so i thoroughly recommend it <laughs> Oh, we're coming to the end of what is our last podcast, and it's been, I you know, as I said, it's been a kind of a three-star fringe, and I, I think there's probably some truth to that, but still you can really enjoy even a three-star fringe, even a three-star three fringe is worth it. Well, I think it's kind of dangerous to to talk about it like that, I mean, <laughs> if I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed with uh, the List's review aggregator on their website, and actually if you look back across the years, the three, the three stars, almost the, the perfect mean score, um, most stuff at the fringe is good. It's not bad, it's not great. Um, and I think that when you, as a reviewer, when you get sent to a lot of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily pick, you might have a kind of um, clouded vision of the fringe. But I think in terms of the absolute highlights, it was as good as it's ever been. Um, so you don't need a Michael Gove-esque, you know, you don't need, we don't need a Michael Gove to come in and kind of pull down this grade inflation. Um, well, actually, I was chatting to a senior figure in the fringe yesterday, and we were talking about this, and... Not the GCSEs. Uh, not the GCSEs, no. It was a little, a little more light, light-hearted than that. Um, and he was, because we're talking about, you're looking at the list aggregator, I think it's down, you know, on average from like what it was last year. I think it's about 3.6. Okay. Uh, I think last year was about 4.1 or, or oh. Anyway, it's down no matter what. Just like GCSEs and A-level results, uh, it's down this year. Probably for the first time in a long while. And... He was saying that he thought it was because there was a bit of a backlash last year, the year before, about kind of critics being too generous. Everyone gets five stars or four stars readily. And he thinks critics are now self-censoring and they don't want to be seen so generous. Therefore, they're kind of cutting back. And I was like, 
actually no <laughs> i don't feel like i've ever self-censored or or felt like i'm being too generous you know i mean five star a five star is Laurence Olivier playing Hamlet. You know that is a five star performance. I mean that is, you know, it's the, the the best thing you could see ever. You know, so if you use that as your benchmark and don't give away willy nilly, then you're going to be all right. So I just kind of thought, you know, on average the shows I've seen they've been good, but there's been very few great shows I've seen this year, mm-hmm. more so than previous years. Well, I think the the nature of that is that maybe each festival, and I think that the star ratings can be. I mean, it's true that, that, ev- that pretty much every poster you'll walk past in Edinburgh will have a four or five star review on it. I think that's to do with um, lesser publications, if I, without, <laughs> without naming names. Um, one using the US review aggregator gave over 200 five star reviews. Jeez. Wow. So There's 200 Laurence Olivier's playing Hamlet? <laughs> yeah, it would appear so. No way. Um, we, are sl- we disagree with that somewhat. I think in, ter- in terms of our proper grown-up reviews that we've given, we've had six five-star reviews, two in comedy, four in theatre. Um, and that, strangely, most of those have been either puppetry-based or silent comedy. <laughs> that, I mean, in terms of the stories of The Fringe, I think that's, I think that's one of them. We are, we are Luddites, mm. so we are. <laughs> Bring just, back Shadow Theatre. Yeah. Shadow Puppets. The real Golden Era magazine. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think in terms of where the festival is, uh, it's, as with many years, I mean, my absolute highlight of the festival this year has been, and this is almost like a kind of brag as opposed to anything else, um, has been Daniel Kitson's stand-up show at The Stand. Now that sold out within about five minutes. So, to be honest, if you're listening to this, you've got absolutely no chance of nailing a ticket <laughs> for the last few. Um, but that was incredible. This this was a kind of deeply philosophical. It was an hour and forty minutes long, so you're really getting bang for your buck there. Um, and Daniel Kitson is just an absolutely magnificent performer. He's the Laurence Olivier doing Hamlet of stand-up comedy. Um, the way in which he kind of builds up his character, knocks it to bits deconstructs it, deconstructs the set going backwards and then reapplies it to a new message, which is incredible. I mean, even kind of just thinking about it now makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And he he's, his mastery of the form, his stand-up persona, his stand-up character, his self-awareness, his awareness of his crowd, and his backlash against that is all just a real joy to behold. And I think it's very difficult to kind of... And bearing in mind that I saw this only a couple of days ago, so my overall opinion of the Fringe might be somewhat clouded by it. But it's difficult to come out of that and say it's been a bad Fringe because the Fringe ultimately is not a a kind of whole... It's lots of different individual pieces. And as long as there are those, you know, five or ten absolute gems, I think it's a successful Fringe. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a bad Fringe by any stretch. I think it's just everyone's becoming increasingly competent and polished and professional. It's a lot less harem scarum mm. or rough around the edges, which, I mean, you know, for myself, is good and bad because, you know, I, I conversely, I saw a lot less. In fact, I only saw one show, which I would have given one star to. Mm. You know, I think there's just, everyone's kind of raising their game, um, which is which is good, you know, but, as you know, um, and yeah, of course you see some spectacular stuff in the mix of all that, but... Yeah, I just kind of think... Aggression to the mean is kicking in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, well, anyway, we'll, 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 end up, uh, we'll end the show with our kind of quick highlights. Ben's given us his, Daniel Kitson, which I guess you won't get a chance to see. I guess I, I'd probably go Dr. Brown. I really enjoyed uh, kind of best moment, I think, was sitting next to Jay Richardson from the Scotsman and Dr. Brown with both of his notebooks out, <laughs> furiously pushing him under, the, under our chairs whenever he came along in case he saw us and dragged us up to the top, as he almost certainly would have. 
perform in front of the audience. Um, how about yourself, Ed? Uh, aside from pappies and aside from uh, captaining uh, our football team to a glorious defeat <laughs> uh, to the comedians in the Amnesty International football game, uh, I would say I actually really enjoyed. I mean, I can still give them three stars because. <laughs> I've been doing that a lot this year but Patrick Monaghan uh, his first 15 minutes uh, which I spent on stage with him because uh, he, he did pull me out of the crowd I didn't have my notebook out for that one just because just to avoid such things happening but it still <laughs> kind of happened And um, but he was just really kind of charming engaging very charismatic performer and he taught me how to hug so you know, well, that's that's a lot. Ed McCracken has learned how to host. <laughs> <laughs> and what what more could you want for a fringe? Thanks to all our listeners for for tuning in over the uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, keep subscribing. We'll be here again next year. And I want to say, obviously, a big thank you to everyone here at Hollywood uh, Media in Le- in sunny, gorgeous Leeds. Well, you can't see out the window. We pretend it's sunny. <laughs> uh, who've been great from helping us with the podcast over the last few weeks. Been really, really top notch. Uh, of course, producer Lewis. Couldn't happen without producer Lewis. He's at Capture Media. Check him out. And finally, say thanks to good folks at Amnesty International, if I can even say it properly, who've been helping us too and are are trying to free Pussy Riot. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye. Amnesty Secret Comedy Podcast. Susan Kalman. Welcome back to Amnesty International's Secret Comedy Podcast, live from the Underbelly with me, Susan Kalman! Talk about human rights, but you made us wait out in the car park for 40 minutes before we came into the show. I'll edit that out. No, I have a strong accent, sorry about this. Uh, I mumble quite a bit as well. So, um, too long you get anywhere I know. When I first realised I was a feminist right. was when I saw the Yorkie ad and it said, It's not for girls. That's when I first realised I was a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a London butter. Are you understanding what people say to you? No. But I do understand this. And that was a sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. I have been and will remain Susan Cowan. <laughs> Amnesty's Secret Comedy Podcast.